Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hello, and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. How are you doing, Lori? I am doing well. I was just telling Rachel a little bit before the recording started about my pilgrimage this weekend. Um, So the original plan was that I would go to St. Hildegard's convent and then go to Mary. It's not called Mary Magdalene's convent, but it is the convent. I think it's um, on St. Baum, St. Baum's cathedral or something along those lines. But it's where the bones of Mary Magdalene are, and according to tradition, it's where the cave that she was in and then was lifted up seven times by the angels. So this this holy location. And I was joking that every time I contacted the convent to ask questions, they would basically be like, the information's on our website. May St. Mary Magdalene like be with you with all your other questions or something along those lines where it was like, we're not helping you, but we'll pray for you. <laughs> it was a little funny to me. And ultimately, I, for other reasons, I ended up not being able to go. For extent, like, I won't go into the details. But I wasn't able to go to the convent in France. But I was still able to go to Germany. But the funny thing was, is that was also really hard. I made a terrible mistake, which I found out is notoriously a common mistake Americans make, is they have short layovers in Rome's airport, which don't do that. Uh, apparently two hours is not enough for a connection because they're notorious for um, just sucking at that, I guess. So I missed my flight into Germany, and then I had to get a new flight, but because I had gotten a discount rate, I had booked with two different airlines, and so they wouldn't couldn't just put me on the next plane. They I had to like find one. Oh my goodness, Rachel! I walked around that airport for like an hour and a half. Of course, I'm in like my platform boot heels because why would I travel in sneakers? You wear the heaviest thing you own when you are flying, so that you don't have to carry it. I know that. Yep. Exactly. And I and I also the, the other reason is is I wore those. I have two closed toed shoes. Cause I'm a men right? I have nothing. I own nothing. So I have sneakers that are fabric and I have those which are like a pleather. And I was gonna be raining. So I was like, those are the shoes I'm wearing. Decision made. And so that's what I was walking around in. Went to like three different gates. Nobody could give me a tickets to a flight. And the flight was going to be like 500 euros because I was getting it so last minute. Sat down on a bench and just started crying because I was like, this isn't going to happen. I'm also meeting my sister there and she's already there. So I'm like, she's just already done the whole tri- trip and she's just waiting for me. And I'm like, everywhere. And then I think about, I'm finished crying, and I look at my phone, and my sister's like, try flying to Dusseldorf. So if those who don't know the geography of Germany, Hildegard's convent is in Bingen, and Dusseldorf is like a two and a half hour train ride north on the river. And I was like, okay, found a ticket for like $144, which is still expensive, but compared to 500 much better (laughs) and flew to Dusseldorf and then my sister with all her glory got me a hotel at the airport so I got into Dusseldorf but then to get there again the train from Dusseldorf to Bingen also was consistently consistently delayed wait a second but this is Germany and I've heard that their trains are always like super on time like what's up with that (sighs) well apparently Mary Magdalene was not with me <laughs> okay, so we can blame Mary Magdalene for it. Got it. Or or because you know, you think about the idea of a pilgrimage. This is the thing that's coming to mind is I think the nuns are saying that in France because it's kind of like you're making a pilgrimage to St. Mary Magdalene, so like this is about a, taking a journey with her to like meet her, 
which is very erotic in a lot of ways. Like you're following your pull to be present with this. I was going to say divinity, but I'm sure there's people listening who don't consider saints divinities. So person, icon. Our topic for today is about that exact concept. So we'll talk more about that. So it's perfect. (laughs) So... I and so I think like it's in the same way it's like a pilgrimage to Hildegard it's like I'm 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 gonna get to you Hildy I'm gonna get to you as much as like with everything in my being as much as I need I'm gonna do everything I can do and so even though a two-hour train ride turned into a three-hour train ride and it seemed like there was no efficiency and it was crazy what it ultimately, it ends up actually happening and you end up finding this place and you end up getting there. But I mean, this ended up being like a learning learning point of like following the call of the divine to like come to it and, and it'll meet you even if it's going to suck and you're going to be sitting in a train station which is cold and wet for an hour. It's You're going to eventually be there in in the sanctuary that you're aiming towards if you continue to yearn towards it it's my little I guess I didn't expect to intertwine like my own little learning in that but that's kind of the learning that came to my mind as I was talking that's beautiful though and I think it's true for pilgrimages I'm like I mean I just right I moved this past week to Boulder which also I think feels a little bit like a pilgrimage of sorts in the sense that like Yes, I have an intention of where I'm going, but it's a process to get there. Um, And it included, you know, going through all of my things and deciding what was I going to ship and what was I going to keep in my parents' basement and how am I going to get me there? How am I going to get Loki, the dog there? Um, All those things were just very... And I like, I have a job out here and I have my coaching practice and things, but also there's a lot of, still up in the air about how is this all going to work out? Um, yeah. And it's, it, it, you do have to sort of just put your trust in the pull, like the erotic yearning and desire for something and trust that that is true. Right. And it was also really exciting because I never speak German because I've never have any reason to speak German. It's just something I really wanted to learn and I'm still not very good at it, but I I can speak it. And normally when I'm with my sister because she lives in Berlin, like she's fluent in German. So normally like I just let her take care of like talking to people, checking into hotels and like doing all that stuff. But it was actually really exciting to be like in Germany checking into a hotel, trying to figure out like why the train was delayed in like this is not Berlin. And most people speak English, but there's a, this is not, I'm not get a having, I'm not stuck in train stations where there's tons of tourists. I'm stuck in train stations where there's people like going to do their thing. And most people don't have a need to speak English on a regular basis. So there were definitely these moments where the train conductors, like the train announcements were only in German. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> What are they saying? Okay, I know what they're saying. Okay, got it, got it. And, you know, but that's those trials. It's the, I don't, I hate the word trial. That's actually a little triggering for me. But it's the, it's the pressure of, of the experience and letting the, the pressure of the experience become the experience, become the thing that you're yearning towards as well, that like what that's going to change you. I go back to that metaphor I've used before in, uh, ropes and dom work where you're tied up and your dom is like teasing you with like a feather or all those things where you're like, I want it, I want it, I want it. I want the orgasm or I want sex or whatever it is that you're, you're really wanting them to do. And, and it, like who the heck would hate being tied up and teased with a feather? I mean, that's not, that's kind of like what Hildegard was doing to me. She was teasing me and like drawing drawing me to her slowly it's like I'm gonna know I'm not giving you me yet you don't get me yet you have to wait you got to sit in the rain a little bit longer and uh yeah and then the celebration or the experience is so much sweeter when you get there because of 
the teasing that has happened all along. And I love that analogy of thinking of these like challenges that come our way as we're moving toward a desire as really just like that feather tickling you um, and teasing you toward the desire. I love that. A friend of mine says, the goddess is my dom. And that's how she understands the difficulties of life is just the goddess being like a, te- like a, a terribly wonderful dom. That actually, I think, uniquely in a way leads us to, to into the conversation of the incarnation. And we wanted to dive into what the incarnation is and uh, incarnational theologies. And also particularly because Rachel has a program coming out for this coming season, the holiday season, about incarnational advent. And so we're on called Incarnational Advent and the celebration of the incarnation that we are about to do in December is really deep and powerful and beautiful. And we want to share some of our feminist understandings and about what that means and sex positivity around incarnation as well. So Rachel, why don't you start? What is, what is the incarnation? And why should we care? So I actually kind of want to give a little preface to why I even created the program to begin with. And it's mostly because like, as I was growing and expanding in my understanding of Christianity to be more about incarnation generally, rather than Jesus as the singular incarnation that like died and then rose from the dead. And now we all worship him. um, It was feeling like Christmas was really hard to connect to. Easter was a little easier because with Easter, you're like, okay, I can symbolically understand the resurrection and, you know, we all become Christ's hands and feet and whatever. But Christmas was like, we're just celebrating the birth of a baby. Like, this is not something that I am having an easy time finding a more a less literal interpretation of, I'll put it that way. Like I'm, I'm having trouble sort of using this as a mythology rather than as a literal birthday celebration for a small child that may or may not be the singular incarnation of the divine, right? So that's part of why I was like, there needs to be something out there to help me, but also to help other people better connect to this concept of Christmas because it gets super celebrated And it feels really warm and fuzzy. We all have those emotional connections to Christmas as a young kid where like it's really big and it's important and it feels special and shiny and bright. And it's like the part of the year that you wait for um, in anticipation all year long, you know. Um, And I wanted to bring some of that back for myself in a spiritual sense, but wasn't quite sure how to do it. And the way that I found into that was to say, oh, okay, we're not just celebrating the incarnation of God into this one person of Jesus, but how can we see this as actually a symbol of all of us coming to better understanding of us and our incarnation of the divine, of all of us being an incarnation of the divine? Um, And if that sounds too heretical to you, then you can 100% say that like Jesus is the incarnation of the divine and we are all lesser incarnations. Um, But if you feel comfortable with it, why not just own the fact that we all carry a unique spark of God within us and we can embrace that. And that's a totally normal Christian theological concept. Yes. I'm thinking as you're talking about that, about how that idea of us being Christ as well as others, and that is begin has been painted, I think, as very heretical. But when you read the early writings of the church, it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound heretical at all. It sounds exactly like what they were talking about. And I think the incarnation coming from an evangelical background was not really discussed because I think our relationship with our bodies was so disconnected. And I know that that's true for Catholicism as well. There's still a lot of disconnect from the body. But the idea that Jesus was a human and that Jesus lived in a human body 
yeah, no one really talked about it. We talked about it in terms of Jesus's birth, but not when Jesus was walking around healing the blind and things like that. The humanity of Jesus was uncomfortable, I think, because the idea for us to also then be holy I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to explain the evangelical theology. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, it's just makes no, it makes absolutely no sense. So I don't know how to make it make sense. But like, there's a, there's a fear of this part of Jesus's existence, the life part of Jesus. We like the death, we like the resurrection, but we don't really like the life part. But that's actually what we're celebrating around Christmas time too. We're celebrating the life. Yeah. And I think that there's a general discomfort with Jesus being just a human body, generally. Um, I think about a class that I took in grad school called Spirituality and Sexuality. And one of the things that John McDar, the brilliant John McDar, who I adore, he's, oh my gosh, you meet him and I swear he feels like a balm to your soul. Like he's just so skilled at listening. So skilled at listening. I, I think that's a big piece of it and of, of hearing through what you're saying and then being able to say something brilliant back. Regardless, I adore him. Um, So he has an assignment within that class where you go through the gospels and you read it specifically with the lens of finding Jesus's sexuality. And so it takes that that incarnational aspect and saying like, oh, can we be comfortable with Jesus's body bodiliness and takes it to the extreme of like, can we be comfortable with Jesus's sexuality? And a lot of times this does end up coming down to his sensuality because there's not anything explicitly sexual in the gospels, but it's pretty, it's a, it's a challenging task from an emotional standpoint, as well as an intellectual one. And it's, it sort of highlights that discomfort that I think most Christians have around sexuality generally, but also like Jesus's sexuality. And if we're talking about Jesus as the incarnation of God, part of what we have to accept is that he is fully human and fully divine. And part of that full humanity is sexuality and is being a being that has sexual desire. And can we see any of that sexual desire, not just like Eros, as Lori and I talk about Eros in this broad way, but like the actual sexual desire of Jesus within the Gospels, which it does take a lot of interpreting. It, it takes a lot of creative lensing. It takes a creative her hermeneutic. We'll put it that way. Making me think of a hermeneutic paper that I had to write. Hermetic? Hermetic paper? No, it would be hermeneutic paper. Um, anyways, Hermes. Um, so <laughs> I had to write a paper on Mark and I think I was assigned Mark or maybe I chose it, but it was when Jesus healed the blind man at the synagogue. And in that story, for those who don't remember, Jesus goes into the synagogue, it's the Sabbath, and one of the leading critics of Jesus's ministry, I don't know if it was a Pharisee or a Sadducee, gets upset that he was healing on the Sabbath. And the interesting thing that I noticed about when I started having to look at it through a body perspective and not just from this idea of what is morality and what is good, but instead what is, how is body being discussed in this writing? And that was what the question was to look at, to translate it with a body hermeneutic. I realized that there was a there's something about touch in the healing that happened because he puts mud on his eyes and I think he spits onto the mud as well so it's like very bodily extremely bodily in the, in the act of healing and then also in the in the body's presence in that Jesus and the healed man and his disciples stay at the synagogue but the critics of what he's doing leave the synagogue and so there's a sense of also being absent from, like leaving behind community and connection and being present with others that also happens in the narrative when you can't handle the presence of the body and like the reality of having a body in, in this space. And it, it, to me, it seems like 
that lack of ability to handle the fact that we have bodies leads us to not be able to handle the idea that Jesus has a body, that he had spit, and it might have smelled bad. It might have been full of bacteria. It, <laughs> like, it might have been all these nasty things that I think we also even associate with sin. We think that we get sick because of sin, which again leads into a whole other question about the theologies around the fall and bacteria and viruses existing as part of creation. But we don't get sick because of the fall. We get sick because that's part of humanity. And there's this, there's this disconnect from the body because I think there's also a disconnect from death. We don't want to die, which is ironic because we're fine with Jesus dying. Yeah, like accepting the... Uh, I remember there was a priest, um, not the... I had like four different priests over the course of college the campus ministry, the years that I was there, every year we had a different priest. One of those priests, um, not the one we ended up with, not the one we started with, one of the ones in the middle, he at some point in time <laughs> pulled me aside and was like, Rachel, you you are too attached to your body. And he was like, what would you do if you like lost the ability to walk or if you lost the ability to dance? And I was like, well... It gave me a lot of things to think about, but I think part of it is that, I mean, obviously that would be devastating. I would, I would have a very difficult time if I lost a physical ability to do something because I am able-bodied. Um, and I have been my whole life and it's something I've like done a lot with and spent a lot of time working on being more adept at being able to use my body. And it would be very it would be a huge challenge, 100%. But I also think that there's a way that if we can embrace our, uh, whatever our level of ability is, knowing that that will diminish over time. And even as I've moved from my 20s to my 30s, it's like, if I don't work out or if I don't do yoga for a while, it's going to take me longer to get back to where I was than it would have when I was 22. Um, and there's actually, it's okay. Like our bodies are supposed to lose their ability to do things, whether that be the ability to hear or the ability, I wear glasses, the ability to see or the ability to move freely. Like those are things that naturally occur over one's lifetime if one is lucky enough to live long enough to lose some of those abilities. And walking into aging with that awareness, I think, is actually a really key piece of being able to accept it when it comes to you. We'll see how that ends up as I age, hopefully. But I think it's a like part of it is embracing part of being able to accept your body as it is right now is also accepting that it is moving toward less ability as we move forward. Makes me think about our episode on disabilities and theology about disability and how it's able-bodied people who see losing the ability of your body as some type of curse. Not saying that people who are disabled also see it as a curse because I'm sure there's definitely people who are losing the ability to their body and they're struggling with it. That's completely human and normal. But the idea that we fear losing our body's ability as if that would be a horrible punishment when there are plenty of people who have disabilities that are living beautiful, joy-filled lives. And it's possible to do that. Sim I mean, I think of that similarly with dyslexia. And how in dyslexic groups that I'm in, a lot of times it's parents and then adult dyslexic people and feeling like I spend a lot of time explaining to parents of dyslexic kids, like, no, your child's not going to lose their life. They're not, like, it's not doom and gloom. Like, stop pitying your kid. <laughs> and, 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 and the idea that, that dyslexia as a disability is labeled a disability, but it's actually has been a blessing for me and I know many other people who have dyslexia. I love that you said if you're lucky enough to lose 
the ability to like your hearing. If you live long enough to lose your hearing, if you live long enough to get to a point where you have trouble, trouble, trouble seeing or trouble walking, like you, your body has been a, with you long enough or you've been in this incarnated state long enough that you get to experience that because so many people don't live long enough to get to experience those things. And yeah, I think that that goes into, in grad school I also did a project on death and that was a part of it as well is that we disconnect from our bodies so much in part also because we fear death. Because we don't like the idea that the brokenness of our body means it will end. And that also goes into how we also like to think that when we go to heaven, we'll have quote-unquote perfect bodies. But we assume that those bodies, when we say perfect, are not going to have the scars from life in them. And when we think, we're just thinking theologically, like in terms of biblical theology, Jesus has nail wounds and a stab in his side. And the mystics image Christ as the, with those wounds, those with stigmata have those wounds as being a emblem of the sacredness and holiness of Christ. Why would we ever assume that when we get to heaven, we're not going to also have the same body issues that we have here? Um. If we can shift, I think another aspect of incarnation that's really important is more so also like how are we defining the cellular aspect of ourselves? Like what is our definition of soul that is being incarnate? Because it's pretty easy to be like, this is my body, right? Like I know what my body is. It's tangible. It's something I can see. But I think this concept of soul gets really muddy in part because we don't actually know. Right? It's one of those wonderful mysteries where we can sort of point to this concept of soul, but over the course of history, what soul means has shifted. If we look at the very beginnings of Genesis, um, God breathes life into Adam, and so there's a theology of breath and air being what is soul, and the idea that when we stop being alive is when our breath stops, um, at least sort of historically speaking. Um, that's not medically necessarily true at this point, but, you know, like our breath is what keeps us alive. And so when we stop breathing, that's our soul leaving our body as our last final breath. Um, there's also this concept and tradition in Judaism where at the end of the Sabbath, there's like another ritual that's done. And part of it involves passing around something that smells good. So usually it's like a cinnamon or cloves or something like that. And the idea is you smell it in order to bring your soul back to your body because over the course of the Sabbath, it's gone closer to God. And so you want to bring it back by smelling something back in. And there's this idea of like breathing your soul back into your body through the scent of this, of cloves, I think is usually what I've, is what I've experienced when I've been a part of that ritual. So breath is one aspect of soul. I think the more common one when we're talking about contemporary Christianity is the mind because of the fact that so much of Christian theology is based in Greco-Roman philosophy, in Greek philosophy, that we end up losing this concept of breath as soul, which is coming from Judaism, and rather end up being the idea of like mind. And something that Lori and I have talked about in the past is like, this concept of in our mind, we can have perfection. Like I can imagine a perfect sphere in my mind. I cannot create a perfect sphere with a piece of wood and whatever you use to whittle. Um, not only because I can't whittle, but because it's impossible. Um, it's a physical impossibility. And so there's this way in which our minds can be closer to God, quotation marks, because of the fact that it can be closer to perfection when we're defining God as perfection, which is inherently problematic from a, um, I think it, it's inherently patriarchal and problematic in that regard. So I take issue with defining soul as your mind, though I know that a lot of people do. 
when you think of your soul, you think of yourself as like a disembodied brain. Where when we consider like, who is my soul? When I die and I go to heaven, if you believe that you go to heaven, um, if when I die and lose my body and I'm just my soul, is it just my mind? And I think a lot of people, whether in are conscious of it or unconscious of it, your soul gets equated to your brain. And your brain is actually also a part of your body and is physical. I'm going to stop there and ask Lori if what her thoughts are on all of that stuff, because it was a lot. Well, I had a couple, I had a couple thoughts, but the one that came to mind was, can God make a perfect circle? And the point of that is, what's our, where are we getting our definition of perfect from? Because that, I think, connects back to the body in that our definition of a perfect body is that model on the cover of Vogue or whatever, who's also been severely edited to look like that. And also that we can now make a perfect circle. Um, I can draw, I can get onto my iPad, I can click circle and I can just pull a line like this and I'll have a perfect circle. And, but it's still pixelated. Well, I was going to have another option too. The whole reason that the earth, the whole reason the earth is a perfect sphere, or I mean, we might not even actually think it's a perfect sphere, but the whole reason it's, we have these planets that seem perfectly round is because of, um, you know, it's moving fast, but there's a scientific term for it. What's the word? Cylindrical force. Yes. Probably centripetal force or something, but gravity also. Um, and the world isn't, the earth isn't actually okay, perfectly spherical. It's actually flattened slightly. Um, I forget the t- correct term for it, but it's not a perfect circle. It's, it's like a flattened. So then there's the solution. <laughs> God can't make a perfect circle. Right. And like all of our orbits are also not perfect circles, right? They're all a little longer and they're all oblong. And now I want to figure out what the shape of the earth is. Mm. I'm going to Google that while you keep talking. Go for it. So I think this idea of something being perfect presumes the idea that our minds are capable of thinking about what perfection is and that our definition of perfect is in line with God's definition of perfect, which is absolute hubris. Because if this world is created perfect and and we're told if we're following the Genesis myth and we're looking at this Judeo-Christian God, then yes, this world was made perfectly. Then perfect circles, perfect, and I'm using quotations, is not really perfect. It seems to me that perfect is the cycle of life, death, and resurrection. That perfect is the is the idea that we, what, there's decomposition. That's perfection. Endings and finitude and, and an absence of finit, finitude. Yeah, finitude is perfect. That's perfection in, in its truth. Um, the earth is an oblate spheroid. In case anyone's interested, we can, you can look that up too. Um, yeah, so this idea I think of God's perfection are these things that are oblate spheroids rather than perfect spheres. Um, Are the reality of death rather than, you know, continued life forever and ever, everlasting life. One of the things that I love, um, Alan Watts, one of the things that I pull from for Incarnational Advent is this book by Alan Watts called The Myth and Ritual in Christianity. Um, and Alan Watts was super fascinating dude. He started as an Episcopal priest, I think, or studied Episcopal theology. And then from there got really into Eastern traditions and started to sort of meld both Christian ideas and Eastern ideas. And then eventually just went totally for Eastern ideas. So there's this interesting midpoint where he starts to write about Christian theology with an eye toward Eastern mysticism. And it's amazing. 
And one of the books is The Supreme Identity, which I love, loved that book. And Myth and Ritual in Christianity was a little harder for me to get through, but he has some really cool concepts. And one of those is a lot of times we think about everlasting life as life that continues forever and ever and ever, right? That's everlasting, I think, actually is what that word means. But we talk about eternal life in Christianity as where we go in the afterlife. It's eternal. But eternal doesn't mean moment, 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 forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternal means that you're fully present in this moment. And because of the full presence of this moment, it lasts. It is it is infinite, though it is not everlasting. And so the idea of eternal life being a whole presence in this moment, not necessarily that it lasts forever, but that you're fully present here and now, and that that's why it lasts forever, is a radically different concept. And that's what eternal life is. So it's less of a dying and then continuing onward forever and ever. But how can we really embrace the eternality of this moment and then the next moment and then the next moment? Because that's where we find eternal life. It's not in this, after I die, I'm going to live forever. My mind, my mind is going to live forever until the second coming and then my resurrected body is going to join back up with my brain. That's a very literal theology that is very useful to teach people as a starting point. And part of my critique of Christian education is that we don't ever move people beyond that literal interpretation, even in graduate school. Like the people that are talking about eternal life as actually eternal and not everlasting are few and far between at a Catholic institution, probably also at Christian institutions. They might be closer to it at Harvard, but even at Harvard, I think they're probably like just saying that Christians are stupid rather than like actually talking about the mystical realities underneath these myths. Um, Yeah. But eternality as a really essential component of the incarnation that we all get to experience because we are incarnate beings. I think that there are corners of Harvard, just like there were corners of BC and just like there were corners of probably every theology school where mysticism is valued and discussed. I also think that I think people still, there's still a lot of people talking about eternity in a way that is very stuck in patriarchal thinking. And your theology still needs to deeply line up with the theology of what I've started to call the theology of our uncles, because the theology of our mothers is one thing, but the theology of our uncles, it was really formed by men who never had children. So they're all our, our ancestral uncles. They're not our ancestral fathers because they never fathered anyone. So, for the most part. Um, and, yeah, so that was just one thought. that I, I don't think, I don't necessarily know, no matter how progressive we get at a theology school, I think we're still living in this place of what can we understand with our mind, not what we can understand with our soul. And we've talked about this plenty of times on the podcast before, about how when the mystics from other religions get together, they can communicate with one another, but it's when the theologians get together that they can't because theologians are trying to understand God and mystics are sitting with God and being with God instead, which I think is a deeply different, it's just a deeply different thing. And I think I want to get back to the incarnation. And so I also makes me think about how when we are incarnate, being in our body present with the divine, there's also this moment when we're sitting perfectly in this present, perfectly, there I go again, but when we're sitting in this moment where we're allowing God to be there, I think that's also where what I hear St. Teresa talking about when she talks about oneness with God, where there's this idea of accepting our present state of being and allowing this present state of being to be part of, of our divinity, that's incarnation, right? And I'm under, I understand that some might hear that and think, well, we're not incarnate. Jesus was incarnate. But being incarnate means you're a divine divinity in this body. So if you're a Mago Dei, you're incarnate. And if that, if that feels... I mean, Imago Dei is like super standard, right? We know that. We are 
that's coming from Genesis. Like that aspect of it, of incarnation is pretty standardly, solidly easy to interpret Christian from a Christian lens. But I think the other thing is like, even if we say, okay, I'm not going to own divinity as like, I'm not as divine as Jesus. If that's something that you want to go with to still consider that our, our soul, like we all have a cellular element to us. I realize that cellular is not a word for those of you who are listening, but it should be a word because it's really useful. Um, but the cellular aspect of ourselves, that is a piece of the divine and it, or it's more related to divinity in some sense of it. Um, and that to me, it means like, to me, incarnation is really referring to the fact that we have a cellular element and a physical element and that they're unified. Well, that's also like, that's the breath, the breath of the divine that gives us life. It's, and if the breath of the divine is in you, then the divine is in you, then you are divine. And it also makes me think about, um, I can't remember the Latin word for it. But the idea that being children of God means that we are like demigods. And there's a way that we are this. I mean, I remember talking about this in Christology class. And is it? I don't remember what it's called. I don't remember what it's called. It begins with a D, like something like dia or, you know, the word for God in Greek. But the idea that we are. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm thinking of like theosis, which I think is different from what you're talking about. But that's the concept of like our goal as Christians is to to grow ourselves closer and closer and closer to being a God, essentially. Um, which is a Greek Orthodox concept, I think. Mm, that's not it. Something makes me want to say it's dietism, but I think I'm I'm like misremembering my words. But either way. It's this idea that in, when we're saying we're children of God, when we become, however for you, you become a child of God, whether it's because you were born in this world or because you were baptized or whatever it is for you personally that, that makes you a child of God, that, that is part of your becoming a part of the divine, becoming incorporated into the divine. And for me, I think when we remember that, that allows our body to be a part of something much more holy than in a sense of having to cast it off. Because then the experience of being in a body is a part of what makes us divine as well as what made Christ. Like Christ is divine as well. I think it's also useful sometimes to think about nature or to think about all of creation. We sort of talked about that briefly, but like if we look at a flower, we would never say, oh, this flower isn't good enough or isn't perfect. It's just that it like a flower is flowering in its flowering way. Or if we looked at mountains, we wouldn't say, mm, yeah, those mountains just aren't quite, they're not quite up to snuff. They're like, there's something a little off about it. <laughs> no, we just are like, these are mountains that are beautiful. And for a lot of people looking at beautiful things like a sunset, which again, like I've never looked at a sunset and been like, man, sometimes there are clouds in the way and you get a little upset because you were really hoping for a great sunset and it doesn't quite work out that way. But you never say like, oh, that sunset wasn't, God really failed at that sunset today. <laughs> um, you just accept what the sunset was or the flower, or the mountains, or the tree, or whatever nature aspect that you're looking at, you sort of just allow yourself to be in awe of what is. And it's curious to me that we don't do that with our own physical bodies as often, that we're not just like accepting them as beautiful aspects of what they are, or ourselves as holistic beings. So like all of us is beautiful and amazing and flowering as we flower. Um, but we can more readily experience the divine through nature 
And I think that that's something too, where it's like, if we see all of creation as a part of the incarnation in that way, as all of it being created and made in the image of God, maybe in a slightly different way than we're made in the image of God, but all of creation being made in the image of God, can we, can we really live life in that way and then come back to our bodies as a part of nature and therefore a part of that larger ecosystem of God's creation that's made in God's image. Well, it's also the idea that, you know, a tree is not failing at being a tree. Like these, all these things are being here for a divine purpose and they're living in that divine purpose. And it's humans who wander around missing what our purpose is and acting in different ways than what our ideal purpose. Perhaps that's what the fall was having the ability to not be in our purpose because I'm like looking outside and I'm looking at the tree and I can see the ocean too. Like the ocean isn't failing at being the ocean. The ocean knows to have waves and to create the tides and it's all going to happen the way it's supposed to. The leaves on the trees are, are blooming upwards and the trees, the flower, like the palm, the baby palm trees in my garden, not my garden, the, the Airbnb hosts garden, but the, they, they don't, they aren't failing to grow in the way that they're, they're meant to grow. And, and I think Hildegard talks about this. I know it's also in the alchemist, which is actually where I think I'm getting this idea from, but when we fail to be in our purpose, and I don't mean purpose, like purpose-driven life, like, are you meant to start a business? Are you meant to, you know, whatever that is. I mean that in purpose, like your purpose for what it means to be human. When we're disconnected from that purpose, which I believe is simply to be Imago Dei, to be the image of love, to be the hands and feet of the divine on this earth, when we forget that, that's when things start getting messed up. But when we remember that we are children of God, that's when we are able to move in this world in a way that is, I mean, there's, there's a, I would say this for myself, there's a much more peaceful ebb and flow to life to know that I am, that is my purpose in life is to be the divine on earth. I would say for me, when I, I was on the New York city subway and I had this like moment of, I will call it like an awakening moment, not, not in the sense of like, Oh, I'm enlightened, but like, you know, we all have like these mini awakenings over the course of our spiritual lives where we come to realize more fully certain things and certain truths. And for me, there was this moment on the New York city subway where I was like, Oh, Oh, this is the kingdom of heaven. It's not something I get to later on. It's right here and right now. And that's where that eternality idea comes from. Is like, we are in the kingdom of God. Yes, from an eschatological standpoint, which I love eschatology. It's the study of the end times, but really this concept of the end times as not something that happens in like Jesus' second coming, but rather anything that happens after Jesus' resurrection which is really, to, in my mind, like anything that happens after Jesus's recognition of his own union with the divine that we then all get to participate in through his understanding of it. Like I now get to understand that myself and go on the journey of figuring it out with a little bit of extra assistance from this person that came before me that understood it. But now every moment that anyone gets closer to understanding themselves as a part of the incarnation, as part of the image of God, as part of the mystical body of Christ that is the eschaton. That is moving us closer to this kingdom of heaven on earth, closer to the kingdom of God. And I think that's really what you're sort of pointing toward, Lori, is that like, as we come to more and more recognition of that, we're able to move through the world in a more graceful manner, both in the literal sense of grace as being connected to ourselves, other people, and God, but also in this, things become easier because you don't have to take things so seriously. You've already reached the ultimate thing that you were trying to reach. You've already gotten to heaven. You're already, you're never going to be damned because it's not even, the only way that you could be damned is by forgetting that you're already in union with the divine. And so knowing that you don't have to work so hard. doesn't mean you get to be an asshole to people, but it means that like, you're not going to have to be struggling every day to figure out like, how do I do the thing that God wants me to do? No, you're already doing it. By just like breathing and 
walking or driving or sitting or whatever you're doing as you're listening to this podcast, you're already doing it. You're already in the kingdom of God. You're already saved. Um, And there's nothing you can do to stop that from happening except for forgetting that that's the case. Preach, Rachel. (laughs) So my question is, and I know I have my thoughts on this, but I'm curious to uh, bring it into the conversation is we're, you and I are talking about this thing that I think we both would say is old Christianity. And so when did we stop seeing the body as holy? When did we start seeing life as good? And what, what is this demonization of the body? Where did it come from? Do you have an idea of how to answer that question? I do. I mean, I feel like there's like so many different places you can come from. You could start with like Greek ideas, like Plotinus and this idea of perfection that we talked about earlier. Yeah, you could go back into and how human bodies can't be quote unquote perfect because we're not. We are oddly shaped creatures, and we are you know all of the things that we decay over time, and all those things can be looked at as as imperfect. Um, You could also look to. Even something as recent as like the Victorian era and um, sort of like all of the the weird ways that sexuality gets gets t- thought of as dirty and wrong and bad that sort of comes into play in the sort of 1800s. Um, yeah, there's so much that you could look at. So I'm just, I mean. Yeah, I was... Well, I'm thinking about this in terms of, I mean, that, that's not a wrong answer. That wasn't a quiz. It wasn't like, does Rachel know the right answer? Because <laughs> I think that's all true. I was, I was thinking, like, when did it come into Christianity? And I'm thinking about, we've talked about this, about St. Augustine and the demonization of the body in St. Augustine. But what I think one of the reasons why the body becomes so evil is because early on, the body, for people who are trying to not have sex, the body becomes that thing that is leading them to sex. And this is one of the reasons why I think women's bodies in particular are seen as evil, so heavily evil and wrong. Because they're the things that draw men away from into sex and sexuality in a way that is evil. And I think... I think in that sense of seeing, once we can then see sex as wrong, then we're going to start seeing all the impulses of the body. And then I'm also thinking about how the body gets sick and we don't want to die and we're afraid of death. And so then also the body is the thing that's making life hard is that my neighbor got the plague and if they didn't have a body, they wouldn't have gotten the plague. And... And if I didn't have a body, I wouldn't be tempted, and especially because it's mostly men writing these theologies. If I didn't have a body, I wouldn't be tempted to go see the prostitute. And if the prostitute didn't have a body, she, I wouldn't be tempted to go see the prostitute either. So it's this idea that suddenly having a body... I mean, isn't it St. Augustine that even said that like penises and vulvas didn't exist until the fall? I'm not sure, but I do know and, he talks about how he sort of... I'm pretty sure he writes a little bit about how he like sort of hates his penis because of the fact that it like isn't something he can control. That like it gets erect without him intending for it yeah. to. And that because of that, it's this irrational aspect of himself. And because it's irrational, especially in relationship to women's bodies, and women, of course, are seen as irrational generally because hysteria. Um I mean, it's hard to think. Totally. When you have They're just Volvo. so all-consuming and amazing that I can't <laughs> think ever. Um, so that concept, I think, is, is part of where he's coming from. Is like, this part of my body is not rational. It's not under rational control, and therefore it's bad. And then that sort of, like, pulls. He's so fucked up. I wish he could have gone to, like, sex therapy before writing theology, mm-hmm. but... But I think what ends up happening is men like this don't become someone that everyone goes, oh, he's so crazy. There's He was someone that all the other dudes got around and read, and they were like, 
yes, preach. He has it totally figured out. And so even though we're not going to have somebody saying, actually, I was going to say people are going to say that penises are irrational. Like we're not going to have someone saying that. I mean, I think we do. I think that that's the whole conversation about porn addiction and men not being able to control themselves and like all that stuff. We still have those ideas. And so as so long as we are disconnected from seeing the desires of the body as something that pulls us towards the divine and we're stuck seeing the desires of the body as something that pulls us away from God, we're going to continue to see the body as, and I don't mean desires, just sexual desires. I mean my desire for chocolate cake, my desire for sleep, my desire for a massage, all of those things, if that's the thing that's pulling me away from God, then I'm inevitably going to be sinful consistently in this world because I'm just trying to stay alive. And that's wrong. Yep. I'm, I'm like, I don't really have anything else to say other than if we can embrace our bodiliness and see all of it as leading us closer to God, then we are practicing our incarnated selves and that we're getting closer to God through that. Um, yeah. Anyway, but incarnational Advent is all about concepts of incarnation, talking about ourselves as incarnate, also creation as incarnate. Um, it includes some really cool, I pulled readings that are both biblical as well as things that are more theological to do Lexio Divina, which is where like you read something with the intention of like just following where's your imagination going? Where is your heart pulling you to? What do you want to meditate on more fully? Um, and over the course of the month, there's also a workshop for creating incarnational intentions because obviously as we move through December we're getting closer to January and then we go to like January 1st let's make our our new year's resolutions and for years I've been like a resolution feels a little too masculine and harsh for me and an intention feels a little bit more like now I can intend to go in a direction but then veer off if I need to um like Lori was trying was intending to get to Hildegard by flying into I think Berlin. You didn't actually say where you were intending to fly into. Frankfurt. Um, the intention was to get to Frankfurt, but it actually needed to be flying into Dusseldorf and then taking a train. So like our intention can be shifted in a way that like a resolution feels way more uh, harsh is the word I was thinking of, but also like boxed in. Um, and so creating intentions that are based in our incarnate selves, based on the idea that we are incarnate beings and by tapping into our incarnation, into that aspect of ourselves that is both divine and, and physical. Um, not that the physical is not the divine. Really, it's that all of it's divine, but how can we really tap into that? That that can guide us to creating intentions for the new year that is actually truly spiritually enriching rather than based on, oh, I want to lose five pounds because that's what dietism tells me. <laughs> Not the dietism that Lori was talking about, but dietism. Puns. Sorry. I've been hanging out with kids too much. It's not, it's actually not dietism. I'm completely incorrect about that because that has something to do with like not being holy. So it's completely different. <laughs> but the other thing I was thinking as you're saying that the idea of intentions, it feels very in tune with pregnancy and very in tune with the other part of, I think, Advent that we never talk about because it's too bodily, is that this woman was pregnant and she gave birth. And birth is very, very, very bodily in a not sexual way. And we want Mary's birth to have been, like every, I, I, uh, every nativity set is like horrifically patriarchal. And I'm fine with, Everyone throwing theirs out. I went through one Christmas where I threw my nativity set out. I was like, I will never have this again. And I got my Mary and Jesus picture that I now lay out because it's like, and Mary's like holding onto her baby and she's holding Jesus like close to her chest. And I was like, this is what happened on Christmas morning. This is what was going on was a mother, a mother wasn't, was 
kneeling with her hands in prayer, like looking down at her baby. She was like smothering him in her face probably. At least that's my experience of what mothers do with their newborn babies. They like hold them close. Um, so that made me think about that and then as well as like intentionality around pregnancy and spirituality around pregnancy with the full moon and setting intentions. So much of that feels so much more in line with something so much more connected to the body is like the ebbs and flows of life can shift and change. And so we set intentions. Um, so tell me, how long is your so program, So it goes Rachel? from this, the first Sunday of Advent. Um, it's self-directed, so it's not like there's a, you have to be somewhere at a certain time, but it sort of opens up as soon as you purchase it. But the intention behind it, intention again, is to start the Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. There's like a lecture and a workbook for each week. And there's actually even like an Advent calendar that has like a specific task each day. If you want to follow along with that, those tasks aren't huge. It's like, I think some of them could be like, bake cookies for someone that you love or like, you know, wear something that helps you feel more incarnate. But sometimes it they're more just like, this is the day when you read this reading that's included in the workbook. This is the day when you do this practice. Um, but there's basically a lecture for each Sunday. Um, the Sunday right before Christmas, you will do the intention setting workshop. And then for the 12 days of Christmas, which if you're not familiar with that, um, those 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany. And Epiphany is the day when the um, three wise men come to visit Jesus, traditionally. So those 12 days, there's you basically have set some intentions and you set up, what am I going to do each of those days to build toward those intentions before? And it'll cross through New Year's Day. So I think... I think the epiphany is always the 6th of January. Does that sound right? Yeah. So it basically goes from, I think, the last Sunday in November this year is the first Sunday of Advent through the 6th of, of January. But it is, like, self-directed. So you sort of get to frame it. And the things that you do over those 12 days of Christmas to build toward your intentions, they don't necessarily have to be you know, it's not huge things. You're deciding what those are. So it could be my intention is to develop a meditation practice. So each of those 12 days, you're just going to make sure that you sit in silence for three minutes. You know, it doesn't have to be, we're not going for the masculine, like I'm going to work out for 12 hours every day situation. Got it. And where do I sign up? On my website, um, you can find it sexwithspirit.com backslash incarnational dash advent. Um, yeah. Cool. And it's, it, you have lifetime access once you purchase it. So you can run through it every year if you want to. And it's just, it mm -hmm. lives on my website and it's really nice. I'm, I'm excited to like go through it again, actually, because I created it last year. And so it's when you create something like this, you sort of like remember what it's about, but you don't remember every bit of information you put in it. And um, yeah, I'm excited to like go back through the readings and, and rediscover them and all those sorts of things. I think something like this is really beautiful too, because I think unless you have time to get up and go to church on all the holidays, and for some of us, you know, especially if you're not Episcopal or Catholic, I don't know if Lutherans do this, but there isn't necessarily a special service during Advent or something special happening to connect you to this time period of the year. And we have, you know, Advent calendars and all these things that we do with family, which is great too. You know, Advent calendars and all these things that we do with family, which is great too. And to remember that this time of year is not just about, although I know that you said like make cookies for someone you love. It's not about having to get all the decorations together. It's not about having to make cookies for that. Actually about this contemplative experience of connecting back to your divinity and, and the divine. And to remember that and have something organized to already be able to go through to help you do that, I think is a huge gift. So it sounds really incredible. Thanks. That's everything we have for you today. As always, thank you for joining us. 
You can subscribe, like, and share if you like what you are listening to. You can also follow us on Instagram at Sex Positive Christian Feminists. And on Instagram, you can also find Rachel at rachel.alba.coaching. And me, Lori, at Lori Kimmerly. That's L-U-R-I-E-K-I-M-M. Feminist Theology and Erotic Spirituality. You can check out my programs at www.lauriekimmerly.com. And for information on spiritual embodiment and sex coaching, visit Rachel at www.sexwithspirit.com. We are the Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and we will see you next week for another conversation about sexuality, spirituality, and feminism. Bye. Mm -hmm.